Thank you, Brother Ham. Good morning, everybody. Yes, amen. I was, I was thinking as we were singing through that song just now, that's an old song. Some of you all remember singing that as a child, but the message is just as relevant today as it was then. In our prayer time this morning, uh, and that's a hint, 841, a little commercial. You should pause, just let that sink in for a second. 841 is prayer time. I was talking about how it just reminds me of what the early church must have experienced, the early disciples, as they went to the empty tomb and Christ was not there, only to find out that he had been raised, he was risen, just like he said. You know, it's so easy to get into a routine and to just kind of let life go by and begin to just check the blocks. And I just, kind of as a reminder for us this morning, I hope we never do that. That as we're singing the old songs, whether we're singing the new songs, that we're singing out of our hearts, remembering what Christ did for us. That's why we're here today, right? I hope that's why you came. You certainly didn't come to hear me, and that's a good thing. I hope you came to hear from the Lord as we look into his word, because he has a relevant message for us every day. Every time we open the book, it's the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts, and we need to be in tune, need listening. Each of us are in a little bit different place in life, right? Every one of us dealt with something a little differently this week. Somehow the Spirit worked in our hearts a little differently. And it's amazing to me, if we're paying attention, how the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts even as we're speaking to a group and as a group we're listening. And so I hope that you're putting on your spiritual thinking caps this morning and just glad to be in the house of the Lord. Now, let me be careful about that phrase. We often, Hamp and I often talk about this. The house of the Lord is where? Right, right here. This is the gathering place. So sometimes we just need to change our wording, but you understand what I mean. I hope you do. This place is only holy because you're in it. It's not holy because it's a block and mortar. It's not holy because we call it a church. You're the church. And it's you are the ones who are holy because the Spirit of God lives in you. And you carry the Spirit of God with you everywhere you go. And so we just get the blessing on Sunday morning of celebrating the resurrection. And that's why we're here today. Amen? Good things to think about. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to turn to chapter 4 of Matthew, and we're going to finish up what we did not get to last time. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being together today. We thank you for the truth that your Spirit lives in us. As we go through our week, may you remind us regularly, whether it be driving down the road or sitting at our desk or doing whatever work we have to do on our feet and with our hands or with our minds, that you would tap us on the shoulder and just remind us in our spirit that you're with us that you see all things, you know all things. You know the meditations of our heart and our mind. Father, I pray that you just keep that in the forefront of our hearts as we live a life of thankfulness, as we were commanded to live, according to 1 Peter, that we would trust you in all things, and that we would believe in all things that you have given to us. Now, Lord, open our hearts this morning as we see again the blessed writing from Matthew, as he is opening up to us who you really are. Lord, may we not be a people that even though we are so many thousands of years away from your existence on this earth, that we forget that you are just as real and just as relevant for our lives today. And so we honor you always. We honor you in our time together and even in our private times when we leave this place. So speak to us, we ask, Lord, in your own way, in your own time, how you see fit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to call this part two, Proofs of Jesus' Deity. So let's stand and read together Matthew chapter 4. I want to back up just a verse where we were last week because we talked about basically two things, and I'll cover that here in just a minute. So picking up in verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among them. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. All right, now... 
if you're taking notes, and I hope you do, and by the way, we purchased some notebooks some time ago. If you want one of those, we'll be glad to give it to you so that you can take notes. It's a little hard on the back of the bulletin to keep up with that. Some of you do a great job, but I would encourage you to at least make some notes as you're going through this. So if you're doing that, you remember that Matthew records for us two powerful ways that Jesus has demonstrated, or in these sections, demonstrated his deity. And let's not forget, that's exactly what he is doing in this letter. He is proving to us, to the reader, whomever that might be, over the thousands of years. Can you imagine what the number of that would be? Only heaven knows the number of people that have read the Gospel of Matthew and heard about the deity of Christ. And we'll see that much more, of course, through the Gospels. John especially brings that in. That's his theme. But Matthew is proving the point here. This is the long-awaited Messiah. In these two sections now, these two, these little few verses right here at the end of chapter 4, Basically, Jesus is demonstrating his deity through the power of his words. And that's what we saw last time. And today we're going to talk about the power of his miracles, the working out of the words. So he proclaimed, he taught, but he also supported that with miracles. Now concerning his word, he made himself clearly identifiable by not only what he spoke, but how he spoke. In other words, he spent the balance of his ministry life teaching his own word. This was not somebody else's word. This was his word given by the inspiration of the Spirit to men who wrote it down. So he taught in the crowds his own word. And then he preached his own word about his kingdom. His preaching was to let people know that the long-awaited Messiah has come what we were saying just a second ago, and that he was there to establish his kingdom. Not an earthly kingdom, at least not yet. That's going to come. And we've seen that in Revelation in many places in Scripture. This kingdom, Jesus is proclaiming, is an internal kingdom. And that's what really threw the people off, especially the Jews. That's what they could not grasp and put their hands around. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, we read this in verse 20, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to, who, how, as to when the kingdom of God was coming, because they believed in the kingdom of God, they knew what the prophecies had foretold, and so they're looking to Jesus, who's proclaiming the kingdom of God now, and they're saying, when's this all going to happen? And he says to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. In other words, you're not going to see anything out there. Don't miss the point. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What was he saying? He was saying, I am the kingdom of God. In my personage, in my spirit, who I am as God, I am the kingdom. And that was a far cry from what they were expecting. Remember, they were looking for an earthly king to come and set them up in a kingdom that would overthrow all their enemies. Yes, they believed in the spiritual God. They believed in the true God. But they had gotten lost along the way. You remember our illustration last time about the rescue uh, place, the rescue house along the the ocean there or the sea that had forgotten their purpose? They at one time had remembered that their job was to rescue souls, but over time, uh, rescue people out of the water, but over time they had forgotten what their real role was and they became more of like a club. And we identified that as the church often today. Well, I think the Jews were in the same boat. They had understood the law, the Torah, that's the first five books. But then the Talmud came along, which was an interpretation of the law. And so what they couldn't understand in the law, they made sense out of it in their own minds, which was in a lot of ways wrong. They made commentary over things that were not exactly what the Lord had done. And so they were missing the point of who Jesus is. Beloved, can I just say to us, I think often we miss the point of who Jesus really is. He's not our genie in the bottle. He's not the guy that we go to when everything else fails. He's not our last ditch effort or resort. He is God. And he is to be worshipped every day. Now, his main place for doing all of this teaching and this proclaiming, we saw this last time, and I want to just reiterate this because I think it's foundational. We talked about this some on Wednesday night, if you were in the group, was the synagogue. You Remember that? The synagogue. Now, as Gentiles, non-Jews, we don't really know a lot about the synagogue. In fact, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you all have been to the synagogue? Probably some of you would say yes. I've been there a couple times. Debbie's been there a couple times. Kids have been there a couple times. Many of you probably have never been to a synagogue, to a Jewish worship service. It's pretty fascinating. But I don't know that we really understand what the synagogue is, so let's go back over it again. It is simply the center of life. 
for the Jewish person, especially back then. And that's the context we're talking about right now. For Hebrew, it was where everything occurred that was important to their lives. Not just the big things, but it was a daily life occurrence for them. It was there where they learned the laws of God, the first five books. That's all they had. And so that was critical to learn about God and how he would want them to live. But it was also where they lived their daily lives. This was where they spent their energy, their daily studies. They would meet with their friends there. We call that fellowship today. It was there that they worshipped and conducted even their legal transactions. So if you had a problem with somebody sitting on this side of the aisle and this side of the aisle, then you would go to the synagogue and to the teachers there and you would work it out. It was where the young boys would go for their basic schooling, their math, their reading, their writing. And uh, some of us have spent lots of years doing that, right? You remember those days? Some of you all were much smarter and got out by the time you were fifth or sixth grade. And uh, you didn't go back. You said, I've learned enough and I'm going to make my life on my own. Some of us have been in school all of our lives because we still don't get it. I'm just kidding about all that. So how do we summarize this? Well, life revolved around the synagogue. It was the place where the people were most, and listen, I mentioned this a lot last week, affected. And I want to hinge on that word just for a minute because I think it's a critical word. It's where they were most affected for life and for God. It was a critical place for them to be. It was an important place for them to be. It was essential that they were, they were to be in the synagogue. They were a unique people. The rest of the world had basically shoved them aside and God was creating them to be a unique people for themselves. And so God said, if you want to learn about me, then it will be through the synagogues. Now those synagogues came about as a result of the fact that people couldn't travel to Jerusalem where the actual sacrifices were made in the, uh, the temple. The synagogues were established because people couldn't do that or it was just too far away or by the time they were deported into Babylon. You remember that's how that all came about. But Jesus knew that if he were going to have the proper kind of audience with the people who were going to care about what he had to say, it was going to be in the synagogue. Now listen, that should be you and me today, right? If God is going to speak to people, then who best should he speak to than his church? Does that make sense? We should be the people who are most affected by what God says, not the least affected not just treated as it's just something that we do during the week. So as much like the synagogue is today, the church should be the same thing for us. And I want to really step on our toes here this morning. I want us to reemphasize the fact to our own hearts that the church was designed by God to give us a place to live life. You remember the text of Scripture where God says, we're to come out from among them and be ye separate? Now that doesn't mean we don't love the world and we don't, Enjoy the things that the world can help us with. In fact, I was just mentioning that to somebody this morning that praise the Lord for the world in many ways because the world helps us in a lot of ways. But as God's people, we are spiritually to withdraw ourselves from the world and be what he wants us to be in the life of the church. And so God has given us this place to live our lives where we not only worship him on a Sunday morning, but it's designed to live life together so that the rest of the week we're enjoying the company of one another and whatever that may look like, the fellowship of one another, helping one another with our life issues and counseling one another. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, why do you take your legal issues even to the world? Why would you take as a Christian your legal issues to an ungodly judge, meaning he may be a nice guy, but he doesn't have the Spirit of God in him or a woman who doesn't have the Spirit of God in him? Why wouldn't you settle those within the body of Christ? And that's how legal issues are supposed to be settled. you know that? It's very clear in, in 1 Corinthians. And so these things become important to us and very careful, or very clear to us as we think about what God wants for us in the church. We are to meet each other's needs. You realize often the church is the last place people look to to meet their needs. And that's usually because they've been hurt by someone, they've had some kind of disgruntlement or some issue, they have personality conflicts, and that's all, say it together with me, because we're a bunch of broken and messed up people, right? But it's in God's mind that the church was his plan for us to meet each other's needs. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law 
of Christ. What law? To love our neighbors as we love ourselves, right? So the Lord's plan is, is that through our difficulties and our challenges, these are the burdens, the heavy loads that we carry, we go to the church. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, I would never do that. Because you're too afraid. You're too prideful. You're too scared that somebody may take that and run with it and create a problem. Well, unfortunately, that's true, and we're often taught that. But isn't it interesting in the mind of God, God says, no, the church is the place that I want you to live your life, just like it was in the synagogue. Again, all of this to fulfill the law of Christ. The place of the church is for all of us to be most affected. We should be most affected affected for life and for God, for Jesus, here in the church. This is the place God has instituted. So may I ask you this morning, have you been affected, number one, by the church? Actually, I should say number one, by Christ. And then have you been affected by the church? What do we mean by that? What does it mean to be affected? It means to be so consumed with the things of God, not that you become freakish, you grow some kind of weird thing out of the side of your head, but that you are a person who so loves God that in your normal course of life, you look to the church, you look to God for everything. For everything. It's amazing to me. And think about this. Just pay attention to your own mind and heart sometime. How many conversations we will have on a daily basis and God is not a part of it at all. The church is not a part of it at all. You see, if you talk to somebody who really understands what we're talking about here, it's like God is filtered into everything that they talk about. There's not a, probably a few seconds that go by where God is not infiltrated into the thinking somewhere. Well, I've been praying about it, or, yeah, I was at church the other day, or God this, or I felt like God was saying this. You know, you talk to that. Now, sometimes in the world, the world will go, oh, man, that's a Jesus freak. Praise the Lord. Wouldn't you like to be a Jesus freak? He said, no, I don't want to be a Jesus freak, preacher. I don't want to be a Jesus freak. That's stupid. No, it's not stupid because when the Spirit of God lives in our heart, we've been affected by him, right? And we want the world to know this is the reason why I'm saying this because God says or because here's what we've learned in the church. This is who we are and this is the way we conduct ourselves, I think we should ask ourselves the question, if we're not being affected by Christ in the church, why not? Why am I not being changed? What's the issue? What are the issues? What's really happening here? What needs to happen for me to be truly affected, truly changed, transformed? I mean, is it something we're not getting from each other? Okay, then that needs to be addressed. If there's some issues of life hurts that we're creating for each other, we need to address that. Unfortunately, what usually happens is people will just exit without giving answers as to what the problems are. But we've got to be mature enough and bold enough and and loving enough to speak truth into the hearts of each other so that we're really living as God intended for the church to live, to love each other. Have you ever had somebody in your life that spoke truth into your heart? And at times what they said was uncomfortable, but you just knew in your heart they loved you, and so you just had to listen to it. That's the way we should be with one another in the church. Why? Not because we just want to be that way, but because that's the way God would have us to be, to love one another as we love ourselves. We need to know these things. And so by affected, I'm really talking about that in positive terms, that we see the value of God in our lives. I think what happens a lot of times is we really don't understand the value or we don't put the value on God that we really should. Ask yourself again this morning, what value would I place on God? And I know every one of us would say, oh, the utmost. He is here. Not one of you in this room would say any differently. But how many times have we talked about and does the scripture promote to us, then live it, then express it. Show it. If you love me, if you love God, then show me. That's what James says, right? I'll show you how much I love the Lord by my faith. But my faith will turn into works because that really proves the love that I had. Okay, so in all of this, what we're really talking about is that that's what Jesus did. He, was, he came to this earth because he loved us 
and was so affected as God that he wanted to pursue us with his own life, to give of himself so that we would not have to go to an eternal destination away from him. He didn't want that. He doesn't want that. And so we're following him in all of this. So we look at our lives and and know that we want more of God and what he has for us. And we say because we understand that we're drawing near to him and a deeper relationship with him, we set our mind on, yes, this is what's right. This is what I need to be pursuing. God is right. I want to follow him. I want to follow him in all of his ways, in his thinking, in his ways he motivates me. I want to be engulfed by God. Now, does that sound weird? I mean, some people would say, yeah, that sounds pretty weird. I don't know that I like that. But this is what it means to be a believer. Matthew is showing us that Jesus affected people by his words. In fact, we're told numerous times when Jesus taught, people were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one with authority. Because what they were used to was somebody just standing up and reiterating the law. But it wasn't their law. It was God's law. It's like me. You can only listen to me but so much because I'm not God. That's why we say you need to be listening to what God is saying because it's his word that's speaking to us. And people were affected by his preaching. So again, is this morning his word affecting you, beloved? Just have to ask the question. It becomes an obvious question, doesn't it? Is the word affecting you? And if not, what's the problem? The purposes of Jesus' words were to affect everyone who heard him. He spoke no idle words, the scripture tells us. There was nothing that didn't have purpose to it. That doesn't mean that he didn't enjoy life. But even in his enjoyment of life with his disciples and the fun that they would have had, you can imagine that they would have had fun together. There's a lot of humor in there in the Gospels if you look carefully. But it was purposeful on the Lord's part because they were so affected and Jesus wanted them to be so affected to give them real abundant life. That's what he came for. Do you feel like you have abundant life this morning? I mean, I'm not talking about painless or pain-free, but I'm talking about at the core of your heart that there is an abundance of life that you just find life joyful. I think that's the way the Lord wants us to live. He's talking about the necessity, not of physical blessings, because God doesn't always give us physical blessings, does he? I mean, there are lots of things that I'd like to have from the Lord in a physical sense, but what he's promised for us is the internal blessings the affecting of the heart, so that we're seeing him in us in peace, in contentment. You know, peace is an important word because peace is not with the absence of problems. That's why it's peace. We find peace in the midst of our problems, the contentment in the midst of our problems. Paul says, I've learned in every state that I've been in to what? Be content, content. I can hear Paul saying, I don't necessarily like this, I don't really want to be shipwrecked. Can you imagine? I don't really want to go without food. I really don't want to stand under the whip 39 times, lashes that is, and he was beaten numerous times. I don't want to do that, but I can tell you this. I've learned even in the midst of that to be content because I know my life is pursuing and following God. And notice now back to Jesus. He didn't use his words to deal with all the latest issues of the culture. We talked about this last time. Why not? Because that's not what he came for. He didn't come to consume himself with a social gospel. And if you notice, that's what our culture, especially the church, is getting really consumed in. How man can be fixed of all his social woes. And that that's the church's job. It started a bunch of years ago with some, in my opinion, some liberal pastors, preachers, teachers, many years ago, who said that there should be economic equality for everybody. And the church is responsible for that. There should be no poverty or alcoholism or crime or racial tensions. There should be no slums. There should be no uh, environment that's a problem. There should be no child labor, inadequate labor unions. There should be no poor schools. There should never be war. And the church is the one to fix all of that. But here's what's really interesting. We would say, yes, none of us want that. But Jesus never came to fix those things. Why? Well, Matthew tells us why. Because he came for one reason to proclaim his kingdom. What he was doing, beloved, is he was drawing the people internally out of their hearts that were so focused on the external to the internal. 
And that's what he wants to do with each of us. His word is designed to captivate us in our hearts so that when we are thinking about this life, we are affected internally so that we're not consumed with the affairs of this life so much that we forget him and what he really came for. He came to rescue us, to proclaim to us a kingdom to come, as which we'll see in just a minute. This is not his kingdom. This world belongs to the power of, of Satan, right? But we as a church so often want to consume ourselves with this world because it's really in our humanness all we can really see. So we have to learn the things of God in the scriptures so that we're thinking internally, spiritually, seeing the true kingdom. And Jesus came physically to show us there is another kingdom. The kingdom belongs to him. It is his kingdom. He came to give us a picture of this. And he did it through the teaching of his word and the preaching of his word. And now he's going to support it with the preaching, excuse me, with the performing of miracles to show that this is reality. Okay? All right. Now, what we're really talking about here is, let me just focus on this for one second, is the difference between the urgent and the critical. I think often, beloved, we get so lost in the urgency of life that we forget what's really most critical. And as I was kind of funning with you, just sort of, about the prayer time, let's use that as an example. This hurts when we hear this kind of thing, but it's important for us to hear it. You realize that there's really nothing more important than a time set aside for God to pray? You see how easy it is for us to get lost in what's urgent. Oh, got to get this done. Got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And that's all important. But those things have a way of getting in front of the critical, right? Is there anything you and I are going to be able to do to save a soul? Can you save a soul? Do you have that ability? Do you have the ability to forgive the sins of another person? I don't have that ability. Do we have the ability really to bring other people with us to the kingdom of heaven? No. All we can do is live a life that's holy before the Lord and let the Spirit of God work through us. But we've got to remember that we can't get in lost in the urgency for what's most critical. And churches often get lost in that. Can that just be kind of a, a caution for us this morning? As we don't forget what's really the most critical in this life? Does that make sense? Nobody's saying anything, so it must make sense. We'll just leave it right there. Okay. All right, now, I felt like it was necessary to reiterate all of those things for our understanding this morning because that's the most critical. The most critical in my mind is that we are being affected by the gospel. The most urgent would be that we understand the necessity of sitting under the teaching of God's word, the critical would be that we're hearing it and being changed so that we can go out into the world and share the good news with other people, right? All right, now let's see Jesus support all of this with what he did. When we left him last time, we left off with his ministry of miracles. So let's go back now, look at verse 23. We're told here that he not only taught and preached, but he did healing of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now listen, people have always been enamored with the spectacular, right? We love to be blown away. I mean, and the more somebody blows us away in our minds, the more we're gravitating to it. That's why they promote what they do on the news, because people just are blown away. Are you kidding me? Show me that again. We just are enthralled with it. And so miracle workers have come and gone a dime a dozen. People who promote themselves as being the healers and the fixing of things, trying to get people to focus on them. A lot of times it's just because of money. It's because of power. People who want something from themselves. Satan being the number one fake in promoting miracles. He's a master copycat. Because he knows that people are enamored with the spectacular. And so the more he can conjure up spectacular things, the more we will get confused at whether it's really God or whether it's just something that's really awesome for us, and we'll follow it. We will follow things hook, line, and sinker. 
We'll get caught up in it all. And Satan has promoted many so-called faith healers. You've seen them over the years. All of them proclaiming this message of healing power. And I want you to watch the subtleties here, though, the distinctions. Usually falsely made, no real lasting power. I mean, they get you in a line and... One of the things that I've read about is the faith healers from years ago at least, I don't know whether they're doing the same thing or not today, probably, is they've got to talk to the people first to find out whether they can handle it. And then often they'll say to the congregation or the crowd watching is that now this person is healed and over the next several weeks they're going to be getting better. Well, if you watch Jesus' miracles, that's not the way he did miracles. It was there. And done. Why? Because he wasn't there just to promote a miracle. He was to promote himself as the king of the miracle. He was the king of the kingdom, is the king of the kingdom. And so don't get lost in the purpose of all these spectacular faith faith healers or things that are amazing to us. The thought that Matthew is giving to us is, no, look to Jesus. He is saying to the people, I am God. Follow me. Listen to me. Understand what I'm saying here. My thought with the faith healers always, but I'm sure you've found this too, is that why don't they just go spend all their time in the hospitals and really heal people, right? And just take care of it. Now, I look through some thoughts about that and people will often say, well, the reason we don't do that is because the person's got to be ready. And a lot of times the person's not ready, so we can't do any healing. You see, it's kind of a rebuttal of who they are and they're putting it back on the person. Oh, they're the problem, right? It's because of you that this doesn't work. Or they're not full of faith enough or whatever, they're, they're victims of something and they're not really ready to let it go and all, all these kind of excuses and things. But Jesus, when he did miracles, you don't see any of that. Why? He didn't need any of that. Because he didn't need people to do anything other than just simply trust him at the moment. So, not only did Jesus prove he was king by proclaiming to a dying world, but now he's proving it through the miracles. Let's go on to verse 24. News about him spread through all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill from all over Palestine. In other words, people came. Can you imagine the scene? With physical issues, spiritual issues. Why? For one reason. Because they'd heard about Jesus. Now here's the flesh involved in this, but the spirit also doing the work. People were hearing about him and his healing power and they came to see him mostly because they wanted him to heal them. That's really what they wanted. It was kind of like, just give me the drug, Jesus. Just fix me and I'll be good. And so they came. And I think that's true certainly of many people today. They don't really want Jesus. Listen, ask yourself the question. I know I'm asking you a lot of questions to ask yourself. Are you here this morning, are you a believer in Christ because of who he is or because of what he can do for you? That's a good question. Am I here because of what I want him to do for me or because of who he is? Are you here to worship him because he is already king of his own kingdom of which he will take you to be a part of one day? even though you may have to struggle through the difficulties, or are you here because you need him to fix something? That's a totally different perspective on who Jesus is. He is not the genie in the bottle. Often, I have worked with many, many people who have looked for him for what they need physically, but never really wanting him to fix them spiritually. And it comes out. It eventually comes to fruition. I remember years ago, when I was uh, associate pastor in Lynchburg, there was a guy who had this just like clockwork. He came with uh, telling me his stories. And you understand there are many people that come to the church and need a lot of help. And, and the church should be doing that. We want to have a big heart for the world. Uh, he came and says, I have 10 kids and, and need this, 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 and this. And, and so we helped him and uh, told him some. We had to set some boundaries because he was kind of coming back every week. And I shared the gospel with them and told the story of how Christ could change their lives. And, and I said, now, listen, here, we're glad to help you with this. I think it was with a, a fuel bill or something like that and gave them some food. And, and I said, now, we have a policy here at the church that we can't help you again for another six months because we just had to set some standards. And almost like clockwork, he showed up in six months. And he said, Pastor, it's been six months. I said, yeah, sure has. <laughs> you got it. 
He wasn't looking for Jesus. It was that more of, yeah, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. Never saw him again during those six months. But he certainly wanted something from Jesus, but he didn't want Jesus. You get the point? Every now and then, there are those who truly are affected by what Jesus does for him. Just look with me at Luke 17. I think I gave you that on the board, 11 through 19. When he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village... As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now why did he say that? Well, that was the Mosaic law. And so he was just repeating to them what the law of Moses had said. This is what you do. And as they were going, they obeyed him. They were cleansed. A miraculous thing actually happened here. Now verse 15. Now one of them, When he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet. What a beautiful picture. Is that not the heart of a heart that really understands? Giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. In other words, that God brings that out because that was that group of people that were intermixed between Gentile and Jew. The people that the Jews hated and the Samaritans also. I mean, the other groups hated them because they were in that middle crowd. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? Do you love it when the Lord asks us questions? But the nine, where are they? I kind of remember ten of you guys. What happened to the other boys? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. What a sad indictment on the other nine. You know, would just say to God that, Lord, help us to never be the nine. Right? Help us never to be those that always are just looking for Jesus to do something for them, but truly are here to worship him. And Jesus knew all about it. He knew those who came to see him. He knew he was a circus sideshow for many people. He understood all of that. But still, he healed them. I want you to see the heart of Jesus in this. Matthew 4.24, look at this again. Those suffering with various diseases and pains, and that's just a reference to all kinds of diseases, if you can imagine. I want you to imagine the scene as we're going through this over the next couple minutes of what this must have looked like. You ever been to a doctor's office when it's flu season? You kind of go in there like this because you don't want to breathe the germs? Or you hear about somebody being sick with a stomach bug? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, ugh. We wipe off the cart when we go to Sam's or when we go to the grocery store because we don't want to pick up the germs, right? Imagine this scene without modern medicine. Imagine what this was like to be in this crowd. Not only that, we're told here demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. There was no one Jesus pushed away. Not one at least according to what Matthew's saying here. We know there were times where he did. He didn't heal everybody. We'll see that in a minute. But even these demon-possessed people. So do you realize, according to what Scripture says, that many, many physical and emotional, and this may shock you a little bit, but many physical and emotional issues are really demonically created? It's true. The demons have a great effect on the physical. And you can see this in Matthew chapter 9, chapter 12, and verse 17. You can see it in Mark 9, Mark 13, and even Luke's gospel, where Jesus deals over and over and over again with physical issues, but calling out the demons. You remember Dr. Jim last Friday night in his spiritual warfare message? You remember what he talked about? That little area in the middle of the American culture that doesn't have a way to title this? We kind of think of this and this, here's the spirit, here's the world, and there's nowhere to really categorize demons in our life. We'll usually say something like, uh, it was just a headache, or, uh, you know, the doctor just misdiagnosed it, or we'll come up with some kind of excuse for what the real issue is. When you look in the scriptures, you don't see that. You see the Lord always dealing with the spiritual. One of my favorite stories is in Luke chapter 8 of Jesus' compassion. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and he came out onto the land, and he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothes for a long time. What a scene. 
He wasn't living in a house, but he was living in the cemetery, basically. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell, out before, fell before him and said in a loud voice, Listen, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You think the demons know who Jesus is? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. Imagine the scene. He was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and would be driven by a demon into the, or the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And the people were imploring him not, excuse me, the demons were imploring them not to command them to go out of, into the abyss. They knew where they were headed, right? They know what the end result is for them. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there in the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. A demon can't do anything without Jesus saying it's okay. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, this is us now, okay? We're the herdsmen. They ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. Come and see! The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and notice this, this is so beautiful, found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. What a beautiful picture. You think that man knew what Jesus had done for him? Look at verse 39. Jesus says, Return to your home and describe what great things God has done for you. And so he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Can we just pause right there for a second? And let's just be reminded of what Jesus has done for us this morning. Now some of you might say, oh, Jesus has done a lot for me, but I don't know that I could point. Some of others might say, well, he didn't cast any demons out. It wasn't like that. Some of you could say that. But here's what we can all say. We can all say, hopefully, that I was lost in my sin onto a devil's hell. And he rescued me. He reached down into the muddy pit and he pulled my soul out. And I realized that. And so because of that one truth, I'll sit at his feet and I'll worship him day and night. I'll live my life for him. He affected me. His salvation affected me. And I'll never be the same. I pray that that's all of our story. He healed epileptics. This is very interesting here as I studied through this. The Greek word for lunatic, which is what we see in Matthew 17, means moonstruck. People who were thought to be afflicted with epilepsy were people who had what they called lunar sickness. They were like werewolves kind of a thing where the moon affected them and that's what threw them off. And we see that in Matthew 17 when we read in verse 14, when they come to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son for he's a lunatic. But we understand through the reading of this that this man had epilepsy. More than light, well, in this case he didn't. This guy had a demon because if you go down to verse 18, Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Now, I think the issue is here is that they thought that this lunacy was from some crazy thing that the mood had conjured up, but Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. This is demonic. This is a demon working in them. Now, specifically concerning epilepsy, we know that that's a central nervous system disorder. Science has taught us that. But here's what we also know, that the demonic world spiritually can affect those things. We had a friend of ours in the church again in Lynchburg. His name was Kenny, and he was an epileptic. And I'll never forget the first time I was with him. We were riding in my truck. He, could, he had it so badly that it was so, uh, he was so unaware of when it was coming that he couldn't get a license to drive. He was a Liberty student, so he'd ride his bike. And we would pick him up often and take him to church. And I'll never forget the first time he had a, a seizure in my truck. And he contorted and twisted, and it was a really sad kind of thing. One time he fell out on the, the church floor just after service, and, and he lived his life the entire way like that. And every time I hear the word epilepsy, I think about Kenny, because he truly loved the Lord, but he was afflicted with this nervous disorder, and I don't think it was a demonic work. But what I'm encouraged by is that Jesus came and healed people like Kenny, and really changed their lives. Kenny knew 
that he was going to go on to be with Jesus even though he had to suffer with this issue. But Jesus, in this particular picture, we're told, certainly cured the people who had epilepsy. Now, as I was saying, how the demonic world can affect us physically, we know that from Job, right? Job chapter 2, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There are times, beloved, where God will give up the allowance for Satan to go out and to afflict us, to cause us to have physical pain. That's proof right there with Job. Okay, So be aware that as we're being affected by Jesus, it should drive us to prayer to say, Lord, if this is an affliction that you have allowed from the demonic world, I want you to know I acknowledge that, but I trust you and know that you have a purpose through it. It could be that the Lord just wants you to begin to pray for the people who are suffering the same thing that you're suffering from. It could be a spiritual battle in the realm that Job was living in, unbeknownst to him, that God was working out. What I'm saying simply is don't allow the things that are occurring to just be dismissed in your mind as, oh, that's just the world and I'm just getting older. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean that that's all it is. You see, again, when we're affected by the things of God, we believe that everything is spiritual and from him. We have a biblical worldview of all these things. The point is, Jesus can heal demon-possessed people, praise his name. He can heal epilepsy. He can heal even paralysis, which is a wide range of crippling diseases, crippling issues, palsies, blindness, deafness, withered hands and arms. We've seen that in the scripture. Matthew's just giving a picture. Remember I told you last week, chapters 5 through 9 are going to be an extension of these things we're seeing at the end of chapter 4, so we're going to see these again. Notice John, uh, Matthew says, And all who were ill who were brought to him. He healed them, every one of them. Go through the listing of all these things. Even in Matthew chapter 8, 16, he's going to heal people. In Matthew 9, he's going to heal people. In Matthew 14, he's going to heal the sick. Matthew 15, he's going to heal people. Matthew 9, 2, he's going to heal people. Matthew 21, Mark 1, Mark 3, Mark, Luke 4, Luke 7, Acts 10, we're told that Jesus healed. Why did he do that? Because he wanted the world to know he was truly God. He didn't say, okay, go away and you'll get fixed eventually. No, he did it right there. That was the uniqueness of his healing. One commentator said this, what he did has never been duplicated. He healed directly. He healed instantly. He healed completely. He healed everyone who came to him. He healed without discrimination. He healed everything that was brought to him. He even raised the dead back to life. B.B. Warfield said, When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. What a beautiful picture. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease from death, disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. One touch of the hem of his garments that he, were, he wore could uh, cure entire countries. And as a result, Jesus was able to accomplish amazing things through his healing power. He proved, listen, again, let's don't lose the point, he was divine. Folks, listen. The one you're talking to, the one that you're reading about, the one you're hearing about is God. He's come in the flesh. He's come to prove to you that of all the scenarios of your life, he has the ability to take care of. Now, does that mean he's going to fix it? No. In fact, we'll see that now. When his time was over, when Jesus left the earth, one of the instructions he left was with the 12 apostles to go out and heal people. But watch this. Matthew 10.1, Jesus summoned his 12. This is critical. I don't want you to miss this because I'm going to make a point here. Disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Basically, Jesus is saying, boys, listen, huddle up. I'm leaving. But to prove to the world that I am here in you, I'm giving you my power to go do this. Now, that's where Satan picks up. 
and begins to falsify and to make proclamations through people that are not real. And that's why it's critical that you see that Jesus gave this to the twelve. There were multitudes of disciples, but there were only twelve apostles. He gave to them the power of healing. That's what the text says. In chapter 10, verse 5, go down a few verses. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and enter in the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you listen to a faith healer backing up a little bit, a faith healer doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're not proclaiming Jesus because this was a one-time event. Jesus had come on the scene to proclaim his kingdom that will come. Now listen, if Israel had bought that, if they had believed what Jesus said, again, as I mentioned before, they would have never been in need for a church age. He came to say, look, it's here. But because the Jews rejected him, he established the church age. And Satan has twisted the work of Christ throughout those days. So two things to understand. He never promised to heal everyone. He may not fix everything that you have going on. Not to his own purpose. Not even his own people, I mean, because that wasn't his purpose. The miracles were for a specific reason. Meaning, faith healing, beloved, is not necessary for today. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying, now hear me carefully because I know somebody's going to ask me this. Are you saying God doesn't heal today? I am not saying that at all. God very much heals. God has been healing me this week. I believe that with the help of doctors. Praise the Lord. Okay, He's healed you through the help of doctors. God is in the healing business. What's happening here in Matthew's gospel is Jesus is saying, look, I am the healer. This is the king of the kingdom. You don't need to look for other people to be the king. I am the king. Don't miss that. When Jesus comes back, I'm convinced what we're going to see are miraculous healings again. In fact, Isaiah 35 talks about that and Revelation 11 talks about that. You remember during the time of the tribulation when God is now making himself known and opening the eyes of the Hebrews once again as we studied in Revelation? There are going to be two witnesses that are going to come and these boys are going to do some amazing things. In fact, the text is there. I don't think I've got it written down somewhere else. But they're going to do some amazing miracles. But that's all going to be to usher in the new kingdom coming again. So let's not get lost in the immediacy here of our lives thinking that there's healings that need to happen and we're to run to this and that. Jesus warned us about that. They're not proclaiming me. What I'm doing is proclaiming to you that I am the king and my kingdom will eventually come. And the Hebrews knew that. Now, here's what's interesting, too, and supports all of that truth, is that after time, even the 12 apostles had less ability to heal themselves. Not heal themselves, but heal others. Paul healed people. We know that. But he says in 1 Timothy 5.23, when Timothy was sick, no longer drink water exclusively, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You say, well, if Paul had the gift of healing, why didn't he heal Timothy? I mean, good grief, he was his son in the faith. Because that wasn't the point. These were signs to point to Christ and who he was as the kingdom. In 2 Timothy 4, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. Well, why did you leave him sick, Paul, if you could heal him? Because as time went on, God didn't need to use that kind of thing to point to himself. But once Israel rejected her, rejected her king. There's no scriptural evidence. There's no evidence in scripture about the continuation of miracles being performed by the time the apostles stopped. It all stops. These miracle abilities kind of stop there as the church age is now ushered in. And again, it's not that God is not doing a miracle. You know what the greatest miracle God is doing today? Saving souls. Is that not a miracle? That God could take a pagan mind that's darkened with the things of sin and can transform it into a mind that understands the kingdom of light? It has to be a miracle. You talk to anybody who doesn't believe 
and you can give them all kinds of convincing proofs. In fact, Luke chapter 16 with the whole issue of Lazarus and the rich man, God says, no, listen, they're not going to believe if there's not the change of the heart. Even if somebody's raised from the dead, they're not going to believe. Why? Because the miracle of salvation is the changed heart by the Spirit of God. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be far different. So really what's happening, beloved, is, is that Jesus has just given us a taste of what the kingdom's going to be like. It's like he came down into the world and he says, hey, you want to see what my kingdom's like? Pow! 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 Wow! Yeah. That's what it's going to be like. When we get into the kingdom, beloved, it's going to be miracle after miracle after miracle. Just go back to our study in Revelation. As we live forever, forever. I was walking through the store the other day, and again that song came on, I'm going to live forever. Remember that theme song from fame? It's true, right? We're going to live forever. Let's don't get caught up in the mundane. And notice this, large crowds followed him, verse 25. I bet they did. From Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, from on beyond the Jordan, large. That word large means, now you can't imagine this, but mobs of people, gobs of people. That's what the word means, multitudes. Multitudes of people. You think Jesus had to preach loud? You know, sometimes I think we think Jesus was just real quiet and real calm, but multitudes of people without a PA system? From the Decapolis, that's just a region of ten major cities. We'll talk about that at some point. Beyond the Jordan. He's just simply saying to us, from all of that part of the world, people heard about Jesus and they came. They came. They came because they wanted something. The question was, what did they want? And that's really for us. What a kingdom. What a king. But what do you want from him? What do you really want? What do you want out of his kingdom? What do you want from him? What, do you, what kind of thing do you need him to do for you? Well, number one, it's going to be, he's going to ask you, do you belong to me? Are you my child? Have you given your life to me? Have you trusted the fact that I am the one who's the debt payer? And that I am the one who gives salvation? <clears throat> That's the question. It doesn't mean that God is unconcerned about your needs right now, or my needs. God is very concerned, but God has a plan and a purpose of what he's working. And we see all of that in Matthew 6. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Listen, just let that sink in. Every time you get conflicted with something and you're concerned and worried about something, let the Spirit of God so affect you that you're hearing him say, I know you need that. God is not unaware. But he says, look, don't let the urgent get in place of the critical. Look at verse 33. But first, here's what's critical. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and then your urgent request will be met. Do you see that? Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, we'll close with this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through what? Prayer. Is that your go-to? Is prayer number one when we're anxious? Or do we say, where's my Prozac? I mean, drugs are good. Drugs are helpful, right? But often we don't have a category for where spirit work fits and we'll seek man instead of prayer. And supplication, what? With thanksgiving. Lord, are you willing to say this this morning? Thank you for this affliction. Thank you for this struggle. Thank you for the aging process. How about that one? Thank you for replaced knees. Thank you for replaced hips. Thank you that my body is growing older so that one day I'll be with you forever. It's the process the Lord has chosen to take us through, right? Now I want you to know I complain about this as much as the next guy. That's why I'm preaching about it. But notice this. Let your request be made known to God. He already knows, but he wants to hear. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, nobody can explain it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You won't freak out. That's what he's saying. 
When the troubles come, you're not going to freak out. He'll guard you. He'll keep you contained. He'll make sure your mind stays focused. Amen? Hey, listen. What a kingdom. Do you know you're a part of it? What a king. Do you know he's your king? You know he has the ability to do all of this? He does. He did. And he can. And he will. In his own time and his own way. Amen? What we got to make sure of is that we're truly a part of his kingdom. We're not just looking for something. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. How could we not thank you? How could we not thank you from morning, noon, tonight for what you've given to us? And Lord, as often I'm speaking again to my own heart here as well as I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters here that your word clearly tells us that your proclamation is you are God. Lord, may we not get lost in our lives here. Lord, help us to reorient, help us to come back to center as we find ourselves being distracted by the details of life. Lord, as as we close our time and prepare to leave for this week, I pray that we will go with a new vision, a new mind, a new heart, a new willingness, a new desire to share the good news with others. Lord, help us to think every time we're sharing that we don't, we're not just going to be freaks of nature, but we're going to share truth. Because that's how people hear. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear unless they're sent? Lord, use us today. Even as we go out at 4 o'clock, I pray that you'd bring us all back here to, to just go and drop a bag of candy on the doorstep. How insignificant that seems, but really it's not. It's simply a method, a plan, a purpose, a way to get the gospel into the hands of people. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And, Lord, guard our minds and our hearts through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.